Hello and welcome to the CM Murray podcast. We're here at the International One Day Conference on Risk, Reward and Reputation Management Issues for Senior Executives and their Specialist Advisors. I'm Louise O'Connor, an Associate at CM Murray, and I'm here with a panel who've just had a fascinating discussion on the topic of addressing and eradicating harassment, discrimination and retaliation against senior executives. What role can executives play to drive change? Let us introduce the panel. Heading up the panel is our moderator, Anna Birtwistle. Anna is a partner at Farrer & Co, LLP in London, and advises extensively in employment and partnership law. Also with us is Helen Calcroft. Helen, who has founded not one, but two advertising agencies, is currently the founder partner of Lucky Generals. We're also joined by Kelly Dermody, Kelly's managing partner of the San Francisco office of Leaf, Cabrazer, Hyman and Bernstein, LLP, and chairs the firm's employment practice group. Also on our panel is Claire Dawson. Claire is a partner at CC Solicitors, a premium specialist employment law firm in Dublin, Ireland. Finally, we're joined by Jennifer Millens. Jennifer is a partner in Mishkondorea's employment department and specialises in complex discrimination and whistleblowing claims. I'm now going to hand over to our moderator, Anna, to discuss this topic of addressing and eradicating harassment and discrimination with our panel. Anna. Hi. Um, Helen, one of the things that I thought was really interesting today on the panel was actually hearing about what you as a founder can do, leaving a business, setting up your own business, and being able to, I guess, shape the culture of your own organisation. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that, um, some of your key takeaways, and also what you've been doing across the ad industry? As we were saying on the panel, I've had a, a quite sort of neat career of three thirds, um, working in a, a large advertising agency and then founding an agency, selling it and founding a, a second agency. And I think I, I was saying on, in the discussion that actually one of the interesting things about leaving being an employee and being a founder in my very early 30s, I was able to be the change because there are so few female uh, entrepreneurs in our industry and female business leaders who literally put their name above the door. But in the second time around, I've had the great privilege and I also think it's a duty to see what I could do to advance the cause of not just uh, the feminist movement but inclusivity in general as a senior woman in the industry and and co-founder of two agencies. Uh, And as part of that, I've been involved with setting up a movement in the industry, which is a collective movement, which we were all discussing is quite unusual. There are not, as far as we can work out, that many industries that want to address these things collectively and as a group. And we set up a movement called Time Two uh, in the wake of the uh, Me Too movement um, to look at how we could as an industry, collectively move the conversation on about harassment and also uh, try to avoid a situation where uh, this is a kind of men versus women exclusive uh, and perhaps uh, intimidating conversation. What we've tried to do is to say that everybody needs to be part of the solution, men and women, young and old. Everyone uh, who is a stakeholder in an industry should be part of the change. And that's a very, very important um, question for us all to ask ourselves and think about how we can collectively do that. We mustn't create a situation where harassers are afraid to speak up or things are happening underground. We need to have a collective conversation. 
And I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways from today and you talking about the Time 2 movement is you know, the fact that we don't have to name the firms in the legal industry to know that there is certainly a, an issue with sexual harassment in our own industry, um, but a glaring gap that there hasn't, as far as I'm aware, been any talk of a movement amongst law firms and lawyers. So I think that, that, that's been very interesting. Another part of the discussion I thought that was really interesting was just the difference that we have in terms of the litigation environment in the US, and Kelly, um, you were talking about that, versus the UK. But at the same time, the similarities um, that, that we identified in the, the idea of safety in numbers for senior execs in raising discrimination complaints and in the US and, and what you're dealing with, Kelly, in the context of class actions. Whilst we don't have that, I think we drew out some at least similarities between what you have in, in the US and some of the cases um, that you were talking about and what we've seen in terms of the movement against the BBC for pay equity amongst executives. Do you want to touch again, maybe recap on some of the cases that you're working on? Because I think they're really interesting to particularly a UK audience. Sure, yeah. So um, I represent employees in individual and class actions in the U.S. And I think um, there are a couple things that are really interesting from the conversation today. One is hearing my, pa- my co-panelists who don't practice in the U.S. talk about kind of what hasn't worked, what are the issues. It's so similar to what's happening in the U.S. I mean, the things that aren't working, the training and the the reporting and the issues with discipline, um, we have those as well, Um, the kind of long road to justice and the the high cost of litigation, um, obviously we have those as well. But one thing we have that that apparently doesn't really exist here is the ability to um, form a class action. And a class action provides the opportunity for a couple of people or even just one employee to represent um, 100 employees or 1,000 employees or 10,000 employees or more um, if there's a common issue that can be challenged in a class action. And that's incredibly powerful because obviously there's lots and lots of claims that while they're personally incredibly damaging and can be career ending on an individual level, they're economically um, not viable for litigation um, because in order to demonstrate the proof of the harm, it would cost more than the claim is individually uh, worth. And that's hugely problematic for making change uh, against systemic discrimination, systemic problems, cultural problems. So a couple cases that typify that in my own practice are class actions that I have going right now against Goldman Sachs and against Google. Those are both on behalf of classes of women. The Goldman case has been pending for a lot longer, and that case has progressed or matured all the way through a certified class, meaning a court has agreed that we meet the elements. Um, The class is over 3,200 women. They are associates and vice presidents. They're challenging performance, pay, and promotion practices at Goldman Sachs. And they, in particular, are identifying a very big gender pay gap, and a pay gap that you would not know existed because pay is not transparent unless you were in a class action lawsuit and had the ability to demand, as we did, that the company turn over human resources data, which could then be analyzed to identify whether, when you account for objective factors that otherwise would explain differences in pay, do you still see a difference between men and women? And you do see very big, very big gaps. Um, So because of the class action, we're hoping to do something at Goldman that an individual woman could not do, which is to fix uh, that pay gap and to ensure fairness for women generally. Um, Similar type of case involving Google, but really just a gender pay gap case. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Jennifer, you were saying that it was actually pay transparency that was you know, the beginning of the BBC case and the women coming together. Definitely, because we have very similar challenges to the challenges that, that Kelly just described in terms of individuals not being in a position to prosecute their claims because they don't know whether they have a claim without the pay data to, to support their fears. And the way in which the BBC cases came about and the crisis that still exists in the BBC was because of a highly unusual government requirement to publish pay data for the highest earners at the BBC that is to do with the Royal Charter that they, they negotiate with the, with the government every 10 years or so. And, and that prompted that, that crisis that continues within the BBC. But because we don't have class actions in quite the same way, we have, um, and Claire and I were sharing this experience, of, and Anna, I'm sure you find the same, acting for senior execs, where it is often, we're often discussing with those individuals the difficulties, the complexities, the barriers to bringing equal pay claims, which means we rarely see them in the private sector at all. And until um, very recent um, BBC claims, which have bubbled up to the surface and, and have now been, um, uh, one at least, has, has now had a judgment found against the BBC, we don't really see them in the private sector at all. So um, people are more willing to take a bit of a risk on those claims now. There are still some huge challenges, though, in, in, in terms of bringing them as an individual in this country. I think one of the things that was really interesting that came out of the discussion was just how everyone agreed the culture has kind of changed in the last few years since Me Too. That doesn't mean that the problems have been solved, but that there's been a, a light shone on, on the issue of gender inequality. And certainly in the UK, we were talking about the fact that the Weinstein scandal broke in October 2017. Then we had the first gender pay gap reports in April 2018. And that meant that suddenly it was gender inequality in the workplace was back on the agenda, so it was something to be taken seriously. And I think that was, that was perhaps something that people thought had been sorted out to an extent and that there weren't as many problems. But gender pay gap reporting showed us that you know, the top quartile of earners in it, sort of across the board, it was something like 25% on average were women. And in some companies it was a lot less. And it didn't really matter how women and men were broken down in the lower quartiles of pay, at the top it was always more or less the same. And I think that's something that's very relevant to the discussion we were having around senior executives. But I think along with that whole piece about cultural shift and culture change, it was an interesting question at the end about does this now mean, and nobody likes this expression, the pendulum has swung too far, but does it mean that if somebody makes a mistake at a Christmas party, a one-off mistake at a Christmas party, that that person automatically is going to be dismissed for gross misconduct? Or is there a sense that there can be something, a sanction, a lesser sanction that can be imposed in that situation? Is there a role for mediation in these kind of situations? Because a lot of the policies that I see advising employers now, as well as employees, offer an alternative resolution to bullying and harassment cases, which might be mediation, which means workplace mediation, where you bring the parties together and you kind of bang heads together. Is that appropriate where someone's made an, you know, an, an allegation of sexual harassment? So I think that's a really interesting question that came out of the, the discussion. And it isn't a clear and a sort of straight line from mm. slightly well-intentioned, inappropriate to predatory mm. behaviour. And there isn't there isn't a kind of we've we've done lots of work on trying to get people to understand that that's you know that it's a gradient. It's not you know mm. a straightforward black and white line. And that's it's very mm. difficult. What I would say though, with this notion mm. of you know redemption, is if someone has suffered mm. you know pretty bad predatory behaviour. Mm 
you know, I'm, I'm in the camp of people, I know Kelly was saying this as well, you know, it isn't appropriate to ask someone who's had a traumatic experience to come to mediation. Mm. So how do, you, how do you ascertain what the truth is and whether mediation is appropriate is a very complex and difficult thing. The other thing we're finding with sexual harassment in the workplace, and we, we you know, have known this over many generations, is that the, the real predators always reoffend. And they might be able to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you took it that way, I didn't mean it, where's your sense of humour, it was just a glass of wine, whatever it is. But actually what we've seen in our verbatims in all of our research is that is this predatory behaviour is, is always part of a pattern when it gets to, to be at that level. And one of the great things about the new environment that we're finding ourselves working is people are a bit more empowered to speak up and find other people in their organisations and more broadly who've had a similar experience. And there is definite you know, correlation, I think, between community and courage. And Kelly, you were talking about social media be interesting just to you know for to reshare that but there is there's something that's happened with social media which empowers people to feel that they're not alone and not isolated yeah i mean i think that that is um a big part of the, the legacy of the me too movement is that women and men who have been speaking out about predators and have essentially kind of had a third rail besides litigation and besides human resources where they get justice in the public um marketplace and I think that's very scary for employers, for companies. And what we know about predators offending and reoffending and having committed acts for a long period of time is that I understand that employers might be very risk adverse once a complaint comes to light to allow someone to stick around for the possibility of multiple complaints to come forward from the past and multiple complaints to happen in the future. Um, I think accountability is a very tricky thing with sexual violence. And it's easier to imagine a mediated type of resolution when you're talking about something that's not sexual violence. It's a different kind of transgression mm-hmm. in the workplace or when the, um, the reconciliation is between the employer as an institution and uh, employees who are affected by um, a long practice of toxicity. In order to have a real reconciliation that's employee to employee where one of those employees is, a, is committed serious misconduct requires a lot of work by the mediator of those two. And there has to be a complete willingness of the person who's been um, victimized or survived that experience to want that. Uh, outcome and to um, control that decision and not feel coerced into it and to make sure that the offending party is ready to be truly accountable and not to re-traumatize someone yeah. because it is it's no help at all to put two people into a room to, as you could put it, butt heads mm. if the person who's committed the offense in the first place is going to be defensive and gaslight and do other things that will just harm uh, the person who was uh, originally traumatized. So there's a lot of, um, of risk, but if done well, when uh, entities really want to heal harms that have happened, uh, truth and accountability and reconciliation and redemption are all possible. It's just not the same bloodless um, HR practices we've all <laughs> grown up in um, that don't really solve problems and, frankly, don't actually end up costing the employer anything less in terms of money or reputation. I thought that point you made about the WhatsApp group, Jennifer, was really fascinating Mm -hmm. on this notion of community, though, and courage for Mm -hmm. women who, or people who are in an isolated Mm -hmm. situation, that, that, you know, finding... 
in the absence of the ability to, to, to bring a class action, there are, other, there are other ways where, when there's been a collective wrongdoing, yeah. that people can find their way to, to find courage together. Definitely. No, it's, it, was, it was fascinating. I mean, it led to, I think at one point, the figure was around 1,000 complaints of pay discrimination being submitted to the BBC. And a lot of and it re, that group reached parts of the BBC that is, you know, physically those individuals are scattered all over the country. A lot of them are working on, you know, local radio up in wherever. Um, they're, not, they're not part of that hub at the BBC in London where people might talk in the canteen or they might talk in a, at a drink after work and, and, and share experiences. Um, but that WhatsApp group was a really simple mechanism to get a lot of people talking very quickly about their shared experiences and, um, and support to support each other, to share information and to support each other through um, what has been a very grueling set of internal processes at the BBC, even if people are not looking at going anywhere near litigation. So yeah, it, has, it was incredibly powerful. I think that's, we'll see a lot more of that, I would have thought, going forward. Can I ask a question about the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so is there um, any tribunal where the thousand people who complain can find some type of adjudication or can a, a fund of money be established that can be distributed based on submitting a claim or yeah. some minor proof you can't you couldn't bring all of those people together this is the problem with the litigation and process in the UK and the way and, and the way the um, equal pay legislation works all these people will have different comparators and be looking at uh, a slightly different and nuanced bits of litigation that they can't bring together the only way the only way we can get anywhere near a class action in the UK in this kind of thing is in equal pay legislation equal pay claims but equal pay claims as they relate to work of equal value which is a slightly different type of claim where you have uh, as a very kind of um, simple example a group of mostly male refuse collectors um, working for a council whose pay is being compared to a group of mostly female dinner ladies and those kinds of you can get classes of people there who can compare their jobs and they'll argue that their jobs are of equal value and if one either one is being paid more than the other then then you can get that as an you can prosecute that as an equal pay claim the all of these thousand bbc women scattered up and down the country um, will have very different claims they won't be saying that my work is equivalent to the work of a radio producer and therefore i can claim that the, that i have an equal pay claim for that reason so it's so they are very individual claims they have to be prosecuted individually as we saw with the case of Samira Ahmed she had she had no one to bring that claim with and, and I don't think on the facts of her case she would have had any one individual that she could have joined her claim with it would it was just her because you need an actual comparator in equal yes. pay you mm. you can't you know in other types of discrimination you can mm. say there's a hypothetical comparator but in equal pay you really need a an actual comparator who you can say this is a man doing basically the same job mm. as me mm. or a similar Right. In the U.S., you can um, come at it through two different types of claims. You can have a comparator, or you can say that the the components of of pay, um, whatever the inputs might be, have an adverse impact on women. And as a a group, as a protected class, Mm -hmm. women suffer. And the and the pay differential is on average. It's just averages. You know, is five percent or something. And you Mm -hmm. can create a fund where you basically could pay out everyone five percent, rough justice, Mm -hmm. Um, or if you work. You know, settling claims three percent would be in the would be the fund or something mm. like that. But That's in return for that, the employer That's gets a release. Better. Yeah, and yeah. so there's an, uh, an advantage sometimes for the employer as well because you know BBC is going to go through whatever it's going to go through. Mm. Would it be better for BBC to say we're going to put aside X thousands of pounds? Mm. 
to resolve all these claims and get a release of claims, and the women may not get 100% of the value of each individual claim, but they all will get something, yeah. and there will be a sense that justice was done. Mm. That's the problem on both sides with the, with the BBC example and with any, any big pay equality problem within an organization is that can't, doesn't work like that in the UK. So, you, so what is happening in the BBC is that claims are being picked off and settled individually, which you know, and, and the way in which the BBC is doing that, the claims that are being prioritised is obviously controversial, and you are, you are leaving a lot of people kind of last in line to, yeah. to get any kind of resolution, yes. and a lot of them will never get a resolution because they will just be fobbed off, mm-hmm. um, and there is no way of holding, other than, uh, there's no legal way of holding the BBC to account such that they are required to, to give that redress to everybody, but certainly not through individual litigation. The Equality and Human Rights Commission's investigation, um, if they, the findings that they make, they can they can order kind of some action plans, some kind of remedial action. They can do that on behalf of a, a lot of people all in one go. It's a bit of a blunt instrument and it's very slow and they don't have a lot of funds. But they are on it at least now. And so they that that is a, a, a probably a better way of getting a bit a bit of justice for everybody. But it's not yeah, again it's 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 not perfect by any means. But again, we have the power of community and social yeah. media and the reputation of businesses and brands like the BBC, which, unless they pro, I mean, if they carry mm. on at the pace that they are, at least there is some recourse outside of, of legal, in, mm. you know, to, to complement the legal mm. process, which mm. is all these people have still not had their claims settled after X yes. number of years. Yeah. You know, if the BBC is a massive employer, whoever it might yeah. be, whether it's Uber or Google, if they don't handle these things properly there is some recourse which is you know social media is always a double-edged sword but one Mm -hmm. of the good things about that is that people have Mm -hmm. a voice to and and reputations of these companies be they goldman's or Mm -hmm. or bbc they have there's a massive downside to them to not acting you would have thought so you would hope so (laughs) we hope we live in hope And on that note, we're going to leave it there. It was a really fascinating discussion um, from one of our most popular panel today. So thank you to all of our speakers for their time. If you'd like to find some more CM Murray podcasts, please take a look at our website or find us on Twitter or LinkedIn. If you'd like to find more of our content on senior executives and founders, please join our brand new forum, the International Forum for Senior Executives and Advisors, details of which are on the CM Murray website. Thanks.